0: Good morning. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here, here this morning for the Congregation of Prayer, and a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Today is Saturday, February 4th, 2023, and we are going to prepare for tomorrow's divine service by looking at the Old Testament and epistle reading. Maybe considering how they fit within the old, uh, the gospel text for the day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the connection is a little hard to draw. Uh, we are beginning what's called the Gesima season or the pre Lent season. I, it doesn't really matter what you want to call it. Um, the 70 days. So we're getting close, you know, 70 counting down to Easter, of course. So we're somewhere between 70 and 60 this week, right? So, uh, so 70 sub to a gesima, 70th. And this is, um, Kind of a green season, a growing season, but it's also a um, it's a beginning of preparation for Lent. So, um, Lent needs its own preparation, I suppose. It doesn't really matter. It's the readings that are appointed for the day, and those are the ones we're going to look at. All right, let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit Memory verse. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 2. All right, you'll notice that uh, I think we have a spiritual deficiency. (laughs) It may be in our contemporary context, or maybe it's always been true, that we think of our need for God's grace and mercy, his loving kindness, um, to be, well, specific to our sin, right? Certainly we need it for our sin. We need to have our sins blotted out, to be cleansed, right? Um, to be washed thoroughly, right? To be under God's tender mercies and under his loving kindness, of course. But we have to remember that, uh, as Paul rightly teaches, that All our works are sinful. Everything that we think, say, and do is tainted by uh, the sinful nature, the flesh. Meaning, we live our whole life, top to bottom, day after day, under God's loving kindness, under his tender mercies, under his washing and cleansing act, uh, namely his grace and mercy. So, (laughs) the idea that one uh, needs grace and mercy, say on Sunday, uh, or Wednesday evening, or, you know, Finding pastor um, in, a, in a time of need and having him pronounce absolution to you, that's not wrong, but we actually need it all the time. right We live constantly under god's grace right? there is nothing that 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 um, there's no life that can be lived apart from that grace and mercy it's uh It is interesting that we kind of compartmentalize and say, Well, the gospel belongs here in this part of our life, and the rest of our life we can just govern by way of the law <laughs> you know doing this. And then when we, when we misstep, then we go back to grace. Then we go back to forgiveness. But only when we need that. The rest of the time we live according to our own um, rules and ethics, and well, or God's even rules and ethics. That's not the presentation that's given in the Bible. The law is to drive us to Christ, right? For grace and mercy, for forgiveness, which is our source of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, not even by way of the law, but by me, but by Christ and his perfect obedience and loving kindness. All right, so this is a a note there. Psalm 77 is our psalm for the week. pray that together. In the day, excuse me, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember, O God, I moan. When i meditate my spirit faints you hold my eyelids open i am so troubled that i cannot speak i consider the days of old the years long ago i said let me remember my song in the night let me meditate in my heart then my spirit made a diligent search will the lord spurn forever and never again be favorable has his steadfast love never ceased or forever ceased are his promises at an end for all time has god forgotten to be gracious has he in anger shut up his compassion then i said I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, as we like to do on Saturday, let's uh, hear a brief meditation on the psalm. I'm gonna use Patrick uh, Henry Rudin's commentary on the psalms here for you. <laughs> Some commentators treat Psalm 76, Hebrew 77 as a meditation of an insomniac, the prayer offered by a man so afflicted with grief that he is unable to sleep. The case seems, however, quite the opposite. This is the deliberate vigil of a man who is fighting sleep precisely so that he can pray and meditate. In the day of my trouble I sought God, my hands raised up to him during the night. My eyes stood sentinel through the watches. I meditated in the night and communed with my heart and stirred up my spirit. This is the prayer of a man struggling to stay awake, not someone unable to fall asleep. The psalm deals with a problem. In the day of my trouble I sought God, my soul refused to take comfort. Will the Lord reject us forever and never again be gracious, or will he cut off his mercy forever? Has his everlasting promise come to an end? Burdened with such thoughts, a man may well be tempted to seek refuge in sleep, as we see in the case of Peter, James, and John. I think the Garden of Gethsemane. These three men the Lord took with him to keep a prayerful vigil during the hours preceding his arrest, but the task proved too much, the flesh being weaker than the spirit was willing. So in their sadness, they gave themselves over to slumber, while the Lord himself continued steadfast in prayer. The keeping of prayerful vigil in the time of trial was also exemplified by the earliest believers in those days, when, quote, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Acts 2, verses 1 and 5. Even as, quote, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. Acts twelve six, the church maintained a p- her prayerful vigil through the night. And on what was the church meditating as she prayed for Peter that in that night of trouble? We are not obliged to guess here. She was meditating on the Exodus. This we know for certain because it was the night of Pascha, the night of salvation, the night that heralds the very dawn of deliverance, Acts 12, 3, and 4. Right, It's the Passover. So, of course, they're going to be meditating upon the Exodus as we do at the Easter Vigil. This we know for certain, because it okay, we already read that. As she prayed for Peter, chained in prison by Herod, the afflicted and saddened church spent that night remembering the God who brought forth his people from the oppression and bondage of Pharaoh, and thus inspired, she prayed for the renewal of God's wonders. The situation and the prayer of the troubled church that night were very much those of our psalm, which also seeks strength by turning to meditate on the mystery of the Exodus. With your arm, you redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O oh God. The waters saw you and whirled back in fear, and the depths stirred with trembling. Awesome was the roaring of the waters. The clouds gave forth their voice as your arrows transfixed them. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your flashes, flashings, illumined the orb of the world. The earth shook and trembled. Your ways, O oh doy, were in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters. Your footsteps will not be known. Like sheep, did you lead your people by the hand of Moses and Aaron? The footsteps of the delivering God are covered over by the baptismal waters of the paschal ministry, and the praying church seeks them again in the meditation through the night. Your way, Horos, O so God, is in holiness. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have made known your power to the peoples. In fact, we know how God worked his wonders for the church during that night she spent praying for the imprisoned Peter. But the story goes on to tell. How he himself shared in the mystery of the Exodus, like the tomb of his Lord, Peter was being guarded by soldiers when suddenly the cell was illumined by the appearance of the angel of the resurrection, telling Peter, "Arise quickly." Acts twelve seven. As on the morning of the Lord's resurrection, the whole scene appeared ethereal and unreal. The artist Raphael caught this scene perhaps better than anyone else ever has in his painting over it, or of it, over the window in a room of the papal apartments. Called the stanza of Helo- Heliodorus, skillfully using Chiroscoro to outline the figures of the soldiers and the rising Peter. Things I don't know. Art. Until one looks at it very closely, the painting easily passes for a scene of the Lord's resurrection, but it is God's answer to the church's night of vigil, meditation, and prayer. All right. What do we do next? We do the catechism. <laughs> what is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness, from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. What sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we're not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts, which are these Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Good. All right. Our Old Testament reading for tomorrow is from Exodus 17. Exodus 17. So we have this theme of Exodus coming out some more. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, "Is the Lord among us, or not?" All right. Um, so I don't want to get too far ahead of us. The First Corinthians text that follows actually says that the rock that was struck is Christ, and uh, drawing that, and not analogy, but that direct line um, between the rock um, at Horeb and the. Or uh, Rephradimem, excuse me, um, and then also uh, with the the water that flows from christ's side, and all of his um, conversation about being from him comes streams of living water, right so it's all um, of a kind right the uh, The other aspect that's going on here is the idea of testing God. We heard it in the psalm a little bit, you know asking questions of God, but um, this idea of testing God uh, which the, the psalm, actually, another, the next psalm, uh, is it the psalm for this week? No. What is the psalm for next week? Sorry, I don't have it in front of me. The, psalm, the following psalm, psalm 78, um, actually is the psalm that's, that speaks of this event. Um, it's a contemplation of Asaph. Let's see, where, where does it happen in here? Um, yeah. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through and he passed. He made the water stand up like a heap, all right? And then listen to this. In the daytime, this is verse 14 of Psalm 78, also he led them with the cloud and all the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and he caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. They tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, "Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, He struck the rock so that waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can He provide meat for His people? Therefore," and then it goes on. So it's a psalm that actually is, it has a strong narrative structure, describing these events along with the um, demand for manna or the demand that will be fulfilled by manna later on. But again, we have this we have this theme of of testing God. Um, Moses says at Mount Sinai, they haven't yet gotten there, but I think in reflection on these words, he says explicitly, uh, this is Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. And they, they've they been doing that, right, with the golden calf incident, um, they do it with, which is at Sinai, of course they do it with both the manna and the quail, they do it with the water from the rock, they do it um, with the water right outside the Red Sea, uh, where uh, he turns the stream from bitterness um, to sweetness by his staff, if you remember. So here what Luther has to say about um, putting the Lord God to the test. This is uh, from his commentary on Deuteronomy 6. As in the preceding passage, he taught the fear of the Lord, that is, that in prosperity we should do what is right, lest we be complacent. So in this statement, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, he teaches us to endure adversity properly to be secure, safe, and sure that we are in the care of God, who does not leave us, but is, at, but is close at hand in all our needs. Right, The same theme that we heard in Psalm 77. This the unbelieving and godless do not do, for they cling to things. God is, however, tempted in two ways. The first way is to not use the necessary things that are at hand, but to seek others which are not at hand. So Satan tempted Christ, commanding him to cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple although there were steps by which he could walk down. So he would tempt God, who would refuse to use clothing in cold weather, but would expect a sign from heaven to keep him from freezing. All right, so we're talking about the temptations of Jesus. Just so, the Jews despised the signs at hand and sought another one from heaven, Luke 11. So he tempts God, who snores and does not want to work, taking for granted that he must be sustained by God without work, although God has promised to provide him through his work. As Proverbs 10, verse 4 says, the hands of the busy prepare wealth, but the slack hand will hunger. This vulgar celibacy is like that too. Are you talking about um, mandatory celibacy of clergy? God takes care of sin and the infirmity of the flesh by making a woman and joining her to the man. But foolish men leave her aside and presumptuously attempt continence by a heavenly miracle. It was said earlier too, that under the surface surface sign of things at hand, God shows his works and wants us to use them, but not to trust in them. For while it is true that the busy hand produces riches, nevertheless, what Solomon also said is true, that only the blessing of the Lord makes wealthy men, namely through the busy hand, Proverbs 10. All right. Uh, For if the busy hand were to be hindered by force, the blessing of the Lord would still enrich. So through the sword he alone gives safety. Nevertheless, the safety of man is empty. And my sword, he says, will not save, Psalm 44. But God will save through the sword if it is at hand, and without the sword if it is not available. All right, so he's, he's talking about um, what really is a paradox, right? We are to trust in the Lord in all things, and yet we're not to be lazy as well, right? Uh, we are to trust that the Lord will defend us, and yet at the same time, uh, we are to take up the sword to defend those whom we love. How can both be true at the same time? Hence, one must use things, but one must not trust in them, right? So we work, we don't trust in our work, we trust in God. Uh, we use the sword to defend, but we don't trust in our own ability, but rather in God's ability to defend. Right? Um, yeah. Only in God should one trust, whether that uh, which you use is a, at hand or lacking. Secondly, God is tempted. This again, the, um, we, we tempt God, the way we tempt God. So God is tempted, we tempt him, when nothing is needed at hand except the bare and lone word of God. Of this temptation, Moses is really speaking here, when he adds, just as you tempted in Masa, right? So our reading, where they said uh, quarrelsomely, is God among us or not? For here the godless are not content with the word, right? That God has promised to deliver them safely into the promised land. <laughs> and unless God does what he has promised at the time, in the place and in the manner prescribed by themselves, they give up and do not believe. But to prescribe place, time, and manner to God is, is actually to tempt him and to feel about, as it were, whether he is there. But this is nothing else than to put limits on God and to subject him to our will. In fact, to deprive him of his divinity. He should be free, not subject to the bounds and limitations, but be the one who prescribes place, means, and time to us. Right. So here's the key. This is what they're tempting God. God has promised to care for them right, uh, and to provide them food and drink. Right. Remember the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Problem is, is that they don't believe that. Um, And so they tempt God uh, to judge them, right? They want to make him their enemy by uh, putting place, time, and manner um, constraints on God, right? No, you have to do it here and now and on the way we want, right? This is is to tempt God. Therefore, both temptations are against the first commandment. That which happens because of sheer lust and prying when things are abundant, and that which happens when poverty urges a man and weakness of faith gives him advice. Here you see the most spiritual commandment explained by Moses in the most spiritual and perfect way, for he has not yet come to images, but he is first concerned with condemning the desires of godlessness, which are at the root of external idolatries and images. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. All right um, now, how does again this test and this trial um, that they they actually test God to see whether He is with them or not? Right, um, Jesus uses this. Uh, this picture himself um, in his catechesis in John 6, which we read a few weeks ago, if you remember, right? Um, he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So he was referring not only to the water or from uh, from the rock, but also the bread uh, that is the manna. Um, let's see what he has to say about that. Uh, actually, I'm not going to share that with you right now. I want to move on to the other reading, if I could. Okay, so there's a lot more that we could say, but yes. Their belief is weak, so is ours, right? But you notice what Luther says: uh, we are to put our bare confidence in the Word of God in His promises, right? Which they failed to do, and we do too,
1: right?
0: So, as I said, uh, from the from the memory verse, we put our enti- we put our entire hands under um, our entire life, I should say, under the loving kindness, the grace and mercy of God, right? His tender mercies, right? So, so the same. Another way to say that would be. We put our entire life under the Word of God. Hmm? Okay. And then our epistle for tomorrow, you'll hear how it uh, does some exegesis on the story from Exodus. It's from Paul, uh, his letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9 and 10. All right, and you're going to hear Exodus language here as well. Do you not know that those who run run, excuse me, in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who completes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. God was not pleased with them because they denied the faith that he gave them, the word and the faith that it gives. So um, there's this other aspect here when it comes to uh, temptation, to doubt, to test God, uh, or to, to tempt Him, um, and it has to do with the flesh, right? Paul's talking about that here, with the body, right? Um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, as we heard uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And for this, to this point, um, Christians have throughout time and history found different ways um, to discipline the body, um, not not necessarily prescribed by the Scriptures, but well, maybe appointed by the church, the local congregation, or a region. And uh, Lutherans are, are not. Um, f- this is not foreign to Lutherans. You remember, um, in Luther's explanation to the Lord's Supper, right? He asks about uh, fasting and bodily preparation. He says they are they are fine outward training, um, but but he who is worthy and well prepared has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So it's the word that does the thing. It's the word that matters. That doesn't mean that fasting and bodily preparation aren't. Um, helpful, um, but they don't give faith, right? They're, they're useful for the disciplining of the flesh, right? And uh, so this was a controversy. Lutherans did not abandon um, the fast, for example, the Lenten fast. As a matter of fact, uh, in many places they intentionally um, had a, a more severe fast than the Roman Church did. <laughs> Just to prove the point that we weren't getting rid of it, um, that, it that it was still helpful, um, but not under obligation or duty. Um, but rather just uh, simply by way of a a suggested spiritual exercise. Um, So there's actually an excursus on this, and I don't remember. Uh, In any case, there is an excursus. Oh, here it is, the Ember Days. Ah, I found it. All right, so if you have a Treasury Daily Prayer, it's on page 21. Um, And so this was the Lutheran practice um, called the Ember Days, comprised of Wednesday, Friday, Saturday of the following week, oh, of the week of the following, the first Sunday in Lent, the week between Pentecost and Trinity Sunday, the week following the Feast of the Holy Cross, and the week following the commemoration of St. Lucia. Right? So it's before, um, it's the first week of Lent, it's the week between Pentecost and Trinity, it's the week after Holy Cross Day, which is September 14th, and the week after St. Lucia, uh, which is December 13th. So here's what it says. Traditionally, the Western Church observed four periods, roughly one for each of the natural seasons of the year. Seeking God's blessings upon the fruits of the earth and acknowledging that all food comes from Him, right? Fast, so think food and drink, right? Bodily food and drink, not just spiritual. Fasting, prayer, and almsgiving are prescribed by the church, marked the three days of each Ember Tide. In the Church of the Reformation, Though these days marked a season of piety, especially devoted to the preaching of the Catechism, right? So you'd preach the Catechism through uh, Lent and after Pentecost at, at Holy Cross, and then the week after Lucia before Christmas. Today, the Ember Days can be a time to give special attention to the elements and fundamentals of Christian knowledge and life found in the Catechism. The Ember Days were originally days of prayer, repentance, and fasting. After the Reformation, the Ember Days themselves became, for Lutherans, one of the roots of the evangelical days of repentance. Mm -hmm. The traditional themes of repentance can be used in one's daily prayer in a way that is already familiar as a day of supplication and prayer. Hymns of Confession and Absolution would be suitable. The appointed Lectio Continua readings of daily prayer can be retained. Um, And as far as the actual fast, um, usually what would happen on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday is you'd eat one and a half meals. All right. But it's under suggestion and not compulsion. And to that point, listen to what um, the Lutheran Confession says in um, the distinction of meats or mandatory fasts if you like, Article um, 26 of the Augsburg Confession. Our adversaries object by accusing our teachers of being against discipline and the subduing of the flesh. Just the opposite is true, as can be learned from our teachers' writings. They have always taught that Christians are to bear the cross by enduring afflictions. This is genuine and sincere subduing of the flesh, to be crucified with Christ through various afflictions. Furthermore, they teach that every Christian ought to train and subdue himself with bodily restraints or bodily exercises and labors. They are neither, then neither overindulgence nor laziness may tempt him to sin. But they do not teach that we merit grace or make satisfaction for sins by such exercises. Such outward discipline ought to be taught at all times, not only on a few set days. Christ commands, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Also, Matthew 17.21, this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Paul also says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. There's our text, 1 Corinthians 9.27. Here he clearly shows that he was keeping his body under control, not to merit forgiveness of sins by that discipline, but to keep his body in subjection and prepared for spiritual things, for carrying out the duties of his calling. Therefore, we do not commend or condemn fasting in itself, but the traditions that require certain days and certain meats with peril of conscience, as though such works were necessary service all right so that's in article 26 um, on uh, the mandatory fasts of the roman church especially say during lent all right and uh, we oppose that and i don't i don't know how how many roman catholics actually practice those fasts even though they're um, still codified in canon law um, especially from trent Um, the same thing comes up again in article um, 15 this time in the apology listen uh, to what melanchthon says here. We teach this about the putting to death of the flesh and the discipline of the body. Just as the Confession states, Augsburg Confession, a true and not a false putting to death mortification happens through the cross and troubles by which God exercises us. In them, we must obey God's will, as Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. They are the spiritual exercises of fear and faith. In addition to this putting to death, which happens through the cross, there is also necessary voluntary exercise. Christ says, but watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, Luke 21, 34. And Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, and so on. These exercises, the voluntary ones, are to be accepted, not because they are services that justify, that is, forgive sins, again, but because they are assumed to control the flesh. Such overindulgence overpower us, or should overindulgence empower us, and make us secure and unconcerned. This results in, in people indulging and obeying the tendencies of the flesh. Basically doing what the sinful flesh wants it to do, right? So to consume more and more, to build bigger and better barns, you know, all of that kind of language. To, um, to amass greater and greater wealth. Um, and to, to grow fat and lazy and, and you know, and drunk. <laughs> fat, dumb, and lazy is no way to go through life, son. Uh, to quote uh, animal, far- uh, animal House. <laughs> all right, so... Uh, let's see, the, the, the required order of certain meats and times does nothing toward controlling the flesh, for it is more overflowing and costly than other feasts. Not even the adversaries obey the order given in the canons. Right? And that, So that was true at the time of the Reformation, it's still true today. They don't follow their own rules. Um, and, and the point here is to say uh, that actually the, the fast uh, ought to be consistent and regular, not just during a time and season. So you can recognize it on the ember days in particular, but, um, you know, like a diet, right? It, it, it doesn't make sense to have a cheat day. You're not actually disciplining the flesh then. You're just saying to the flesh, oh, you can have a day off, right? Um, no, instead, if you're going, uh, going to rightly uh, be a good steward of, of the body that God has given you and exercise and eat well, um, to do so regularly and consistently, to not overindulge. you know, um, It's one of the deadly sins, right? Gluttony. I don't know if, if we would consider it a deadly sin, uh, although it often can be, right? Um, you know. So the, the point is is that it, it doesn't save one from sin, death, and hell, but it does restrain the flesh. And an undisciplined body, a lazy body, is one that also ultimately, here's the point of both um, the confession and its apology, will get in the way of one hearing God's word, right? So instead of waking up in the morning, as you do every morning, um, and, and going about your work, then on Sunday you say, well, today is the day I'm going to sleep in. I'm not going to have that same discipline of getting up, preparing, you know, um, to break my fast and then um, go to church, right? Like, why? Why would Sunday be different? Yes, it's a day for rest, but rest in God's word. Rest in God's word, right? So you lose discipline, and then consequently you lose um, the word of God, right, in your ears. So that's what they're. That's what they're concerned about is the way that um, the cares of this life of the flesh of wealth, uh, wealth generation, work, these things can get in the way um, of hearing God's word, but also being lazy um, and being, um, you know, a glutton and a drunk, you know, well, that can also get in the way of God's word, right? To your Even ability to participate in it. So I don't know why we've gotten away from this idea that, that the flesh should be disciplined. Um, I'm not particularly good at it, I, I'm not admitting, you know, for me, it's seasonal too. I do better in the summer uh, when my workload is lower because the school's in, not in session, um, so I have more time available, you know, for for exercise. But um, you know, there there used to be maybe maybe an undue emphasis or, or an exaggerated emphasis on on personal fitness and well being. But you think of like uh, both the YMCA and the YWCA, right, as being organizations that had that um, idea that it was it was. Helpful, at least maybe they said necessary. I don't know, but at least helpful uh, for Christians to be in in regular exercise, disciplining the mind and the body, uh, for the sake of the hearing of God's word and the receiving of His gifts. So that's what it's getting after here, right? And so uh, you can see that with the Exodus reading as well, in the way that um, you know their their thirst is getting in their way of trusting in God's word, right? God has actually laid that cross upon them that for a time they're going thirsty. Um, not to hurt and harm them, but that they would turn to him in faith, right, and cry out to him in faith. And uh, they don't. They actually cry out in unbelief. And yet he even uses that um, to demonstrate his power and authority over creation to provide for them. Okay, uh, I think, here's, I'll give you one more example um, uh, in regards to the flesh and being disciplined. All right, this is from uh, Formula of Concord. I think article four would be a good one to share with you all right article four in the formula um, is on good works right and this is towards the end um on clarification of terms all right in the fall fo- in this matter the following distinction must be noted the meaning of the these expression must be a, must be a necessity based on christ's ordinance command and will and based on our obligation but not a necessity based on coercion. In other words, when the word necessary is used, it should be understood not as force that works are, good works are necessary, but only as the order of God's unchanging will, whose debtors we are. So God gives us our works. Think uh, Ephesians two verse ten. Right, His commandment points out that creatures should be obedient to its creator. In other places, something is said is something is said to be of necessity. Um, that is wrung from a person against his will, by force or otherwise, so that he acts outwardly for the sake of appearance, but without and against his will. God does not want such hypocritical works, right? So that would be the case with mandatory fast, right? It's, it's wrung out of him against his will. The people of the New Testament are to be a willing people and sacrifice freely, right? So that's Psalm 110, Psalm 54, not reluctantly or under compulsion, Second Corinthians 9. They are to be obedient from the heart, Romans 6, verse 7 for God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. In this understanding and in this sense, it is correctly said and taught that truly good works should be done willingly or from a voluntary spirit by those whom God's Son has made free. The dispute about the voluntary nature of good works was engaged in by some people who specifically made this point. Here again, it is well note the distinction that Paul makes in Romans 7, verses 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law that is not only unwilling or undisciplined, but also waging war against the law of my mind. Regarding the unwilling and rebellious flesh, Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified or slain the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24. See also Romans 8.13. When it is asserted and taught that good works are free to believers in the sense that they are optional for them to do or not to do, this is false, must be rejected. It is false to say that believers might or could act against God's law and still have faith and find God's favor and grace. Right, So that's, that's a really important statement. Right, So all of this disciplining of the flesh is done uh, willingly, that is under the Spirit of God who works in us. Such faith, right, trusting, not through coercion or through... Um, what was the other word that he used? Uh, <laughs> to, to be wrung from the person against his will. What a statement, isn't that? All right. I mean, this, this text is actually pretty uh, substantially used. Uh, the same conversation comes up with the third use of God's law, uh, sometimes called the uh, pedagogical use. Right? So it is necessary that the law of the Lord always shine before them so that they may not start self-willed and self-created forms of serving God drawn from human devotion. The law of the Lord is necessary so that the old Adam may not use his own will but be subdued against his will. Right, So that's why we're talking about this. Uh, but works of the law and the fruits of the Spirit, works of the law you know, under duty or obligation, are not the same as the works of the regenerate, which are done spontaneously and freely. All right, there's lots of things that I want to think about there, um, but that'll be good enough for now. Okay, so um, I think maybe maybe the one connection that between these texts and uh, the gospel text for tomorrow, which is the, the labors of the vineyard, a parable from Matthew 20, is um, the idea of work and the necessity of work, all right, um, and to not be lazy, um, but to trust in God that what he gives is always good. Um, that's not an easy thing to hear, right, um, because not everyone is given equally and, or given according, to, as Luther said there um, in Deuteronomy, according to the place, time, and um, manner. That we would choose, but according to his place, time, and manner, which is why, like the 11th hour workers get the same pay because that's what God has ordained for them, right? Even if to us it seems unfair or um, uh, completely unjust, right? It's under God's good, good and gracious will. All right. Well, I think that's enough for now. Let's uh, sing our hymn for the week, O wondrous type.
1: Jesus' mystery for which in joyful strength we raise of all
0: Very good, let us pray, O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, you confirm the mysteries of the faith by the Moses, our testimony of Moses and Elijah, and the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in His glory, and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Merciful Father. You promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I come before you for confession and absolution, teach me to consider my place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Work in me true contrition and repentance. Give me a desire to live a new life. Help me to know and confess my sin truthfully as I receive my Savior's forgiveness, comfort my conscience, renew my life, strengthen my faith in Him, and restore to me the joy of your salvation. All this I ask for the sake of my dear Lord Jesus Christ, who died for me and shed his blood for me upon the cross for the forgiveness of all my sins. Amen. We pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray this day uh, for Greg, who celebrates his birthday. We pray for the households of our church, especially that of Matt and Vicki, Dick and Milda, Jim and Mardell, Chris, David, and Al. We give thanks to God for our Lutheran Day School. We pray for our catechumens. We pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Joe, Kelsey, Walt, Naomi, Christopher, Dan, and Brad, Ron, Betty, Joan, Cheryl, Pat, Merlin, Heidi, Dick, and Karen. We pray for our homebound, Ed, Paul, and Pauline. We pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially the work of Sheboygan Lutheran High School, pray for our relatives, and we pray for our benefactors. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. It's been a joy to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer. We come to you each morning at about 9 a.m., except for tomorrow, Sunday, because we have divine service at 9 30. All right. So join us for that while we'll Bible study from um, Ezekiel 13 with the prophets and the prophetesses, the false prophets and false prophetesses. And we we'll have to talk about what a false prophetess is. All right. Um, it's a little bit uh, obtuse, maybe. But I think uh, we can draw some contemporary application. You might guess where we'll go with that. All right. Um, so join us tomorrow for divine service again at 9.30, Bible study following. Um, there is a youth group meeting, uh, youth group uh, gathering, I should say, during Bible study hour. So uh, what is it, age 12 to 18, I think. Um, join um, Cheryl over here at school. Just going to have a nacho bar. It'll be fun. And they'll talk about uh, some future events that we've got lined up. Um, have some activity there for the youth. All right. So, with that, I bid you a fond farewell. We'll see you, hopefully, tomorrow morning in person, if at all possible. God be with you all. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting ST John Random Lake dot org, that's St John slash support, and give today.